Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. My name is Dave Stovall. I'm your host, and you're about to hear part two of an interview between our Discipleship.org Collective Director, Matthew Dabbs, and President and CEO of Awana, Matt Markins. So if you haven't heard part one yet, skip back to episode 78 and check that one out before going any further. Matt and Matt continued their conversation about creating lasting faith in kids by giving us a look at what it means to disciple kids with the end result in mind. And also, you don't have to be a parent to gain something from this episode. If you have children in your life, which everyone does, then this episode can help you learn how to speak into those kids from whatever role you have in their lives and begin discipling them. Let's jump into this episode and hear from Matt Dabbs and Matt Markins. Enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. It's Matt again uh, with Matt Markins for part two with uh, Awana. He is the president and CEO of Awana. And we were just talking about uh, resilient faith in, uh, in kids and discipleship in our previous session. And we want to start this one with uh, an analogy that he has talking about uh, raising kids on Mars. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when we were together for the first uh, episode, uh, we talked about this phrase called cultural formation. Uh, so, so to, to, to give a kind of a metaphor to that, about a year and a half ago, I was driving, I dropped my, dropped my sons off at youth group and I'm driving uh, back to the house and where I live, you have to go through a rural session between Nashville and Gallatin to get to my house. And while, while out, you know, in this part of Nashville where you can only see the, sky, the, the stars, I'm listening to Elton John's greatest hits. And the third song in is rocket man. Matter of fact, I've got my little uh, little image here of the song Rocket Man from Elton John's album there. So I'm listening to that song, and about a minute and 51 seconds in, this line comes on that says, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I hear that line. I'm out in the middle of nowhere, Sumner County. I mean, it's just me and the stars and, and the Holy Spirit. And I hear that, and I'm like, God, that is a brilliant line. Why in the world did Elton John write that that way? So I go home and I immediately I'm researching like, why was the song written the way that it was written? And for those people who know Elton John, well, he had actually had a a writing partner who did most of the writing of his music. His name's Bernie Toppin. And Bernie said in an interview several years ago, he said he had read the series of short stories called the illustrated man. And when there's this particular one that's on 
outer space and astronauts and this idea that astronauts would one day become like an everyday job where they they go to the moon and back in their home by dinner time right so and so that was kind of the spirit with which he wrote that song what's interesting is he wrote that in 1971 the song was published in 1972 well what we know about that time period of history is it's right in the shadow of sending a man to the moon right 1969 so at that point in time in our history in the United States, space race was at the center of U.S. culture. So here he writes this idea, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Well, the most brilliant part is in the lines uh, that follow. Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. And then he says, in fact, it's as cold as hell. Well, what is that? When we when someone says you're, you're, you're as cold as hell, that means it, that's isolation and loneliness. And the next line says, and there's no one there to raise them if you did. So what do we call it when there's no one that, around to raise the kids? We call that abandonment, neglects, right? So in the third line, so Mars ain't the kind of place to raise a kid. In fact, it's cold as hell. There's no one there to raise them if you did. And the last line here is in the stanza says, and all the science I don't understand. It's just my job five days a week. Well, you guys probably remember the documentary that came out during the middle of the pandemic, uh, a social dilemma. Social dilemma was about the technology we've created, we put into the hands of our children and students, and we don't even understand the social and, and psychological impact of the like button and all this stuff and what it's doing to our children. So what you have here is a song written by mm. Bernie Taupin and Elton John in 1971. That's a picture of the future and the future is now. Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Uh, isolation, loneliness, neglect, and abandonment were in over our heads with technology. So mm. Elton John gave us a picture back in 1971 of this future we're going into, and we've arrived there. We are raising our kids on Mars today. And so the question then becomes like, well, if this is where we are, like Mars is pretty unsustainable. And, you know, unless you're Matt Damon, you know, on the movie Mars, Mars is pretty unsustainable. And so what are we going to do to raise our kids to be thriving Christ followers in this world. So that's that whole idea of cultural formation, post-Christian culture, secularism, and even cultural Christianity are these dominant forces that are forming our children to be hyper-individualists. So we've got to ask, the church has to ask, what is it the church does that leads to lasting faith in kids? And I think that's the conversation that you and I have been having. So when we talk about faith and how do you define faith? Like as a parent, I want to know what am I aiming at here? Yeah, I, I, I would say faith is 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 when a child has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They're, they are a Christ follower. You know, they've entered into a relationship with him. And, and maybe that's maybe your children are pre relationship with Christ. You know, you don't know that they've actually taken that first step of like, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I'm surrendering to him in faith. Or maybe they're post that, but we would call the process of forming them into a, a child who's placing their faith and trust and identity in Jesus. We would call that process discipleship. And I'm, I'm getting to the definition, but uh, one of our team members, Ed, uh, Ed likes to think of, of this whole process, like when you're boarding a plane, when you board a plane, there's that one inch gap between kind of that little runway, the tunnel, and then the one inch gap and you step on the plane. That one inch gap that you step over you could kind of kind of equate that to salvation. Like I'm, I'm taking, I'm trusting Christ as my savior. I'm saying yes to Jesus and I'm repenting. I'm turning away from myself and I'm turning toward him. So if that, if that's the one inch step, but discipleship is a, is a relational process. That's kind of like boarding the plane. It's, it's that it's pre that one inch gap and it's post that one inch gap. It's the whole process. So what would be that process of forming their faith? Uh, here, here's the word, the language that we give to that. 
we say resilient child discipleship is is designed to form lasting faith by helping kids belong to God and his kingdom, believe believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and become like Jesus and walk in his ways through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're okay, I'm going to read that a second time. Absolutely. Um, I'll I'll kind of read it with a little bit of commentary. Resilient child discipleship. That's the language we get. We want to help form children who are resilient in their faith, meaning they're going to bend and flex, but not break like Daniel in the Old Testament or like Stephen in the New Testament, right? So resilient child discipleship is designed to form lasting faith in kids. How? By helping kids belong to God and his kingdom. In the beginning, in the garden, we belonged with God. Where He created us. We are his. We walked with him. We're highly, he's highly relational with us. Jesus was highly relational. So resilient child discipleship is designed to form lasting faith in children by helping them belong to God and his kingdom. So we're embodying belonging relationally, and we're doing it in such a way that says, hey, I care for you, but there's a God up here who loves you way more than I ever could. So I want to exude relationship and belonging just like Jesus would if he were here. Uh, it's also to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? Like that's It's not just this, hey, I'm going to be a nice guy and I'm going to be highly relational with you. It's I'm trying to point you to Jesus and how, how do kids believe through through engaging the scripture and hearing about the gospel and learning uh, through him and his 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 message to us through the scriptures. So belong to God in his kingdom, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to become like Jesus and walk in his ways through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that becoming peace, right? That's like the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus told us in Matthew five through seven how to live. Uh, Jesus modeled for us what disciple-making discipleship looks like. He modeled how to pray, how to have a relationship with the Father. So those three factors, you want to form kids in this Mars-type world. It feels like we're raising kids on Mars, but resilient child discipleship is designed to help kids belong, believe, and become, and to walk like Jesus and to walk in his ways through the power of the Holy Spirit. So so that's how we would describe the process of helping form a child's faith and and faith meaning that long-term lasting faith, lasting personal relationship uh, with Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. Oh, so good. We we, um, talk about resiliency a fair amount in our household. So one of the things that's occurred to me as my kids are now 11 and 13 is that how they see me handle difficulty is either going to help make them more resilient or less resilient. Yeah. So if the smallest thing throws me and, and incapacitates me, someone's upset or someone said something I didn't like, whatever, like if those are incapacitating to the adults, then my children are going to have a very low threshold for anxiety tolerance. Yeah. So, and and, and the reason that that's a generational systemic problem is because I shouldn't be thrown by such things if I'm a kingdom person, not not to an incapacitated state, right? Like I could be like, yeah, that upsets me, but I know in the grand scheme of things, it's okay because they belong to God too, right? Yeah. So just in the way we frame it and bring God, like you said, eyes to see back into the story, like I want my kids to be resilient because the world's going to throw a bunch of junk at them and I don't want them to sink. Like, I, yeah. you know, you, you might start sinking a bit, but you you always have to have, 
it's kind of like you're going to slide down the rope, but let's make sure there's a knot in the end, you know, so that you can catch it. You're not going to slide off the end. So that's yeah, the so kind we, of kids we, I'm trying to raise. Yeah, we describe the resiliency or resilience as a spiritual elasticity that helps kids or adults bend and flex, but not break under the weight of cultural formation, right? Yeah, so that's, that's how we would describe it. I agree with what you say, but I would add, I would put a plus and I would add one thing to that, you know, through the lens of the grace of of, of the gospel, the grace of Jesus, is that every one of us has uh, the, the, the reality of our frailty and our humanity and our sinful nature, and we each hit breaking points. So, so even in our failures with our kids, so if you're a parent yes. listening or if you're a pastor and you've got all this pressure on you and your kids are seeing you at your best as well as at your worst, so, so taking one of those moments you just mentioned, even that, as shameful as that is and as embarrassing as we are when we sin in front of our kids or, or they see the, the depths of our humanity, being able to sit down around the living room and say, hey, you guys saw dad at his worst. You saw me incapacitated or you saw me, you know, lose my, blow my top or whatever. You know, I, I want you kids to know that's exactly why I need Jesus Christ. Yes. You saw me sin. You saw me weak. You saw me frail. And it's through the grace of Christ that he forgives me or that he restores me and he gives me strength. And, you know, kids, would you please forgive me for, you know, really having a bad attitude or losing it or, or whatever? Like, mm -hmm. like that's modeling the gospel for them. That's modeling aspects of the gospel, uh, forgiveness and redemption and restoration. And so, I think even though what you said is true and we we want to model resiliency for our kids, I think when they do see us at our worst, it was a real opportunity to model what they're going to need with their kids, you yes. know, yes. one day as well, too. So, yeah, that's really well said. Really well said. So what are some some predictive factors of resilient faith? Are there things that we see? We talk, we often hear like five adult relationships or something like that. Like, what are some of these things we need to try to foster? Yeah, in our in our in our own research, as well as like in the Harvard Center for the Developing Child, in the research that the Barna Group did just recently, there there is one primary factor that is the undeniable golden nugget, and it's the power of one loving, caring adult. So, if again, if you're a pastor. Like, 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 please, I, I ask you, please listen to this. this is the most important thing I think I could probably say today. If, if, if you're a pastor and you're looking at these kids in your children in your children's ministry, and you're thinking, who are these kids going to become when they're 25, 35, 45, the teaching of the word is, uh, is obviously is so powerful. But if you want the teaching of the word to be more understood, it's going to happen through relationships. And so all of our research, the Harvard Center for the Developing Child, the Barnard Group, they all say the same thing. And it's that when children have at least one loving, caring adult who knows them, who knows their name, who knows kind of their life circumstances, and who's building a solid ongoing relationship with them, those children are far more likely, listen closely, there's no comparison. They're far more likely to thrive in their faith because they have access to a relationship, an adult translator, an adult advocate someone who cares for them and loves for them, someone who's modeling, hey, what does this even look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus or even to live life, right? Those kids are far more likely to follow Jesus into young adulthood. So if I were a pastor knowing this, Harvard saying the same thing as Barna, that's saying the same thing as Awana, that's saying the same thing as Christian Smith, like we're all saying the same thing. If I were a pastor, I would be talking to my children's ministry team, 
How can we become as relational as possible? How can we cast vision to where we have a lot of people investing in children to where children's ministry is where the energy is? Because mm-hmm. two, two things are happening. We're forming more children into Christ followers, into young adulthood. That's happening. But the adults who are engaging, they're also participating in discipleship types of activities. And guess what's happening? Those adults are also growing as well. So what happens when you really highly invest in a relational children's ministry or child discipleship is you're actually lifting you're lifting the discipleship energy. You're transforming the discipleship culture of the entire church, not just what's happening in your children's ministry. That's really good. So, I mean, what you're describing really is, and this is not at all intended to be a criticism, the outgrowth of the of the models we've chosen. Yeah. Right. Because we've siloed generations. So like if you're a house church of 20 or you're a small rural church of 100, like those things are pretty built in. Like if you're not big yeah. enough to have a youth minister, then those adult relationships are kind of built in, which actually is the majority of churches. They're actually small. Most churches yeah. are under. Yeah. So, you know, that's actually not most churches. We just tend to focus more on the big churches. But, you know, I think you do have to go the extra mile if, if we age segregate and silo generations, then we have to do that extra intentional work of, of building those bridges. Because, you know, I think one of the things that happens with the young adult fall away number is that we never really had them, had them like we had them in their own church in our church, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, come over to big church. And it's like, I don't know anybody. I don't, this is yeah. you know completely foreign. So like you're saying, if we can build those bridges in advance and be proactive and intentional, uh, that should go a really long way for retention for maturation and things like that. I think what you're what you're saying alludes to a question like every church is asking a question. Like whether whether we cognitively realize that or not, every church is asking a question. And most churches in the West, most churches in the US are asking the question, how can we get more people here? You know, I think that's mm-hmm. like the dominant question is how can we get more people to come to our church? And, and, and I, we know that because of the, the church growth model, the attractional model, and the, the, the assumption within that question is if we could just get them here, they're going to grow in their faith. I, I think that's a lesser question. I, I think the better question, and I think the question that we that Jesus is modeling for us is how do we form lasting faith in people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do we form lasting faith? It, you've heard the classic story of, of uh, Truett Cathy with Chick-fil-A pounding his fists on the table and saying, I'm tired of everyone talking about how to get bigger. I want to talk about how to get better. Because if we get better, our customers will demand we get bigger. Like, like that's that's like a hint to the church. Like, we need to be think we need to be asking how can we form lasting faith in people. Jesus didn't say, "Hey guys, disciples, before I ascend into heaven, you guys really need to figure out how to get more people to your local gatherings." He mm-hmm. didn't say that. He said, "Go and make disciples." He's essentially helping. He's saying this is the answer to the question: How do we form lasting faith? And so, in our children's ministries, I think we've attached. We've attached children's ministry to the church growth model, and we've he- we invested heavily in in entertainment and relevance. And p- COVID really exposed, hey guys, we're, we put the energy in the wrong place. The energy really needs to be, how do we form lasting faith in these kids? And that's a better question, I think, for the whole church, and that's helping the church move uh, from attractional model or church growth to the formational model, which yeah. is all about discipleship. Yeah. And it sounds like some of the answer to that is incarnational, right? Like we need relationships with real Jesus people. Absolutely. 
And that's yeah. like the pastorals. Like, I mean, Paul talked about that, taught on that relentlessly in the pastorals, the older and the younger and who's teaching who and, you know, you know like learning totally. from the older generation, like all that's all. But they were house churches and they were all in it together. Like for us doing a house church, our bigger concern is like our teens aren't getting other team peer interactions because we're a small group. Like we're not yeah. a lot of people. So how do we find that? Like that's more our problem than we don't have a problem with our teens interfacing with adults because we're a house church. Yeah. And that speaks to intergenerational, right? And yes. I think I think when we look at the uh, Jesus and the disciples, you know, we've got good reason to believe that most of the disciples were young men. You could even say like a like a youth yeah. group or young adult group. Yeah, that's right. And, and I it, obviously Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We we see we see in the Bible uh, Jesus transforming old people, middle aged people, young people, you know, young all that kind of stuff. So having said that, what we know about humanity is that worldview is largely set at a younger age, not an older age. And Jesus, I think, knew that. And Jesus called young people who had the energy and open minds and hearts to be open to the gospel. But this is also true for us today. Do you mind if I give a quick metaphor around this? Yeah. So are you familiar with the term, the canary in the coal mine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so for those who maybe who are not, like when our great-grandfathers went down into the earth, you know, to mine the coal out of the, the coal mines, um, they would take with them a canary in a birdcage. And the reason they did that is because if they hit something and the deadly gases were escaping, you know, they didn't have the dashboards that you and I have today to say, warning, warning, there's a problem. You know, their dashboard was that canary and when that canary, which was highly sensitive to the gases, would fall over dead, that was their dashboard to say, you guys got to get out of here. There's deadly gases here. And so you, you could say in the church in the West, what's asking the question, like, what's our, what's our canary in the coal mine? Our canary in the coal mine has been young adults leaving the church after graduation. So if that's our canary in the coal mine, we've got to say, well, how how would we follow that deadly gas backwards to know like when where did it come from and when did it start? And so we we typically say that's age 18, like we've got to form them prior to age 18 so they don't just, you know, fall over dead like the canary in the coal mine. Like like what what can we do prior to that age? The, the problem is that we're using the wrong deadline. The deadline's earlier than we thought. Oh, the yeah, deadline's not 18. Yeah, it's like, Barn what, 12, 13 or something? Yeah, the Barna Group says that 90 plus percent of human beings have a worldview that's largely set by age 13. So if you're a pastor, check this out. It, we've, been, we've been using the wrong deadline. The deadline's earlier than we thought. The deadline's age 13. So if you want to form someone's worldview prior to age 13, you've got to ask, like, what was happening when they were 11, when they were 10? Human formation and child discipleship is about the eight-year-old. So if you're looking at your congregation saying, how can I form? What's the best stewardship of my discipleship energy? It's prior to the age 13. That means your kind of target market, if you will, is an eight-year-old. What's what's happening leading up to age eight? And then what's happening between ages eight and 13? Eight-year-olds is where it's at. Eight-year-olds is where discipleship energy can be invested and you're going to yield greater Results. So if I were a pastor, I would be like thinking through how can we get more loving, caring adults, trained vision, training and equipping to engage with children. Those adults are going to grow in their faith and you're going to see more people being formed as disciples prior to that deadline, which is not age 18. It's actually age 13.
Do you all do much with um, sending people on missions, serving together, things like that? I mean, is that a preventative factor if you if you're on mission? It's not. It's not our expertise. We are a global organization. We have vice presidents all over the world. We have in-country directors all over the world. We're in 134 countries, but because we work with primarily indigenous national leaders, uh, we we haven't built infrastructure to send a lot of teams. Having said that, we do have people say, "Hey, we'd like to go visit Awana in churches in X Y Z country," right, right, right. and that does happen. But that we we haven't built the infrastructure to do that. No. Well, I, I guess I mean more on like a local congregational level. Is there any are there any stats on on people who are teens, young people who serve on mission and yes, and sustainable faith? I'm not I'm not recalling the exact stats that uh, that you might be referring to, but but there is data that said it goes back to the three B that third B of becoming, which is about experiences. Yes. When children are experiencing active faith participation with their parents or their local church community. It's it's another kind of deepening of the roots of their faith. Uh, so it's it's super important. There have been some studies on on children who volunteer and serve with their parents and and or with their church. And it, it's it's a big deal. It, it's very it's something you want to invest in in terms of being most faithful and fruitful uh, with the gospel with kids. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Are there are there anything like any numbers that just really surprised you either that they didn't really show up like it was non-significant or things that were significant that you didn't expect? I think one of the things that surprised me is that that parents are more ready for the local church to talk with children about tough topics than Mm -hmm. than the actual kids pastors are. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go analog here, and I'm literally thumbing yeah. through a book. So we ask, you know, our children's are our children's ministries covering the tough topics that matter most to parents? I'm just gonna shout some of these out if that's okay. Yeah, like bullying, lo- bullying, loneliness, social media, uh, racial inequality, depression, suicide, gender identity, school shootings, all this sort of stuff. And at, at large, parents are are more open to some of the tough topics that like they're more ready for the church to help them with that than the church is actually equipped to, to actually have these conversations. But it goes back to some of the stuff you were hinting at earlier. The church is wired to quote unquote, run a children's ministry program. So, so when you kind of toss something into that engine, like, Hey, can you help me with, with some sexual identity conversations the average kids pastor or the average volunteer, you know, might get a little bit of a deer in the headlights. Like, like we're not, necess- uh, yeah. the church isn't necessarily ready to have those conversations. So the problem is Mars is not the kind of place to raise your kids, but Mars is where we are. So the question for the church then becomes like, well, how can we get more equipped to talk about loneliness or depression, suicide, self-harm, school shootings, and sexual identity? Because that's the world that the children are, are growing up in. And the parents have very real questions. And so, that's that's why we have events like the Child Discipleship Forum. That's why you put on the National Disciple Making Forum is so that we can have these types of conversations so that children's yeah. ministry leaders and parents can get equipped on this stuff. Oh, that's so good. Well, you know, one of the things I wonder if it kind of aids into that is the schools have gotten so vocal on tough issues, right? Like in health yeah. classes and things like that, that if you're a parent, you're like, well, they're already talking about it at school. Like, why can't we get some help over here on, on the on the church end? Uh, one thing that I wonder about is like, 
you know, we we really have developed in the West a professionalized culture. So like, I don't work on my car anymore. You know, car, yeah. cars are all computerized and stuff. Like everything requires professionalization. You know, we're, we're, we kind of say, well, I'm not an expert on that. I probably shouldn't get into it. You know, let the experts handle it. Does it seem that way a bit with children's ministry where, like, in other words, parents aren't discipling their kids at the levels maybe we'd, we'd like to see. And maybe part of that is they weren't modeled that themselves generationally. But then maybe part of that is them saying, well, we have we, we pay staff for that and we tithe and we hired someone and they're the professional. And they went to school for it and they've got a master's and I don't. So we'll just drop them off and let them do their expert thing. And then, you know, like. Do you see that? Is that valid? a valid thought? No, I think that's a very valid point. And by, by the way, there's aspects of outsourcing that I think are very positive and very biblical. Yes. We'll, talk, we'll talk about that in oh, a minute. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, yes. so I, I think we are seeing in the data, we are seeing from the Barnard Group and others that, that parents tend to take more of a passive role by taking their children to church, which by the way, the average kids go coming to church about 1.7 times a month which is not, you know, not not as frequent as maybe it would have been in previous generations. So kids are going to church less. And then secondly, the parents are taking more of a passive role. Again, parents at law, I'm not I am not talking about every parent. I'm talking yeah, about yeah, the, the, the the majority of data. Most parents tend to take more of a passive role. They're taking their kids to church, they're dropping them off in children's ministry and, and they're hoping great things are happening. And so, you know, there's two two kind of key points there. What is the church doing when they do have them? And then how can the parents get more engaged in the discipleship process? So, yeah, unfortunately, that that is showing up. A large segment of parents are, are kind of more passive. Yet, Kara Powell said in her book, Sicky Faith, that only 12.5% of parents are having spiritual conversations with their kids. That's a dismally low number. Hmm. But I, I so I'm going to go back to your idea, though, of outsourcing. So, as a parent, if you were to 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 draw a circle, or if maybe if you were to take your parents through an activity like this, have each parent draw a circle and and look at the holistic development of your child, right? Like cognitive, spiritual, health and wellness, all of the different aspects of your child's development. And have that parent draw like shade in, like what portion of that pie can they actually make a substantive contribution to? I think all of us, if we're honest, you know, maybe that's 12%, of the, 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 maybe it's a quarter, maybe maybe we're really confident I can meet half of my child's needs. <laughs> but even the best parent among us, there's a huge percent of our child's development educationally and spiritually and mentally and emotionally that we can only give so much to, right? We're going to need other people. So I think it's an honest parent that says, I need other support beyond myself, right? And so the job of a parent is not only to be as engaged as we can be, relationally, spiritually uh, with our kids, but it's also to draw a circle around our children. So if you could draw another imaginary picture in your head, draw a stick mm -hmm. figure of your child and draw an oval around them, what five or seven other adults are you going to put like little X's around that oval to say, okay, here's Uncle Dean, uh, here's Aunt Katie, uh, you know, here's coach, coach Robert, you know, who are those other five to seven people that you're going to build an intentional team around each one of your kids to say, this is their web of other disciplers who are going to help me. Because again, I can only give my child so much, even if I am busting it and I'm being the best spiritual parent possible, I still have limitations. And so the parent's job is to not only engage actively 
in child disciple making, but to build that oval, that circle around their kids and to build that team of other people who are also investing in their kids and then keeping in touch with those people. Hey, could you send my son Hudson a note? He really needs some encouragement. Could you help him out today? Or, hey, would you be willing to have coffee you know, or, or, or come over to the house you know, in, in a couple of months and just spend a little bit of time? You know, That kind of proactiveness is exactly what our kids need. They mm-hmm. need parents to be proactive in developing a web of relationships around them. That's so good, man. So what kind of people are we looking for here? Are there, are there characteristics of the kind of people who you invite in like that? Oh, that's a great, well, I, the first word that pops in my mind is Christ likeness. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I would want to put someone in their life, someone in their life who has a level, we're not looking for perfection. There is no perfect, you know, I, you know there's no, no one among us is perfect. So just people that you would say, you know, this person, my, again, I, I talked about Hudson. Let me talk about my other son, Warren. Let's say, Let's say I'm thinking about Warren. Hey, this person gels well with Warren relationally. They have elements of their spiritual walk that I admire, and I think Warren would admire. There's a level of spiritual maturity and, and overall life maturity that I would trust this person to engage with Warren. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to have them, you know, we're going to invite them over for a cookout on September, whatever, right? Like, so this family comes over, and I make sure that, you know, this is someone who Warren already trusts anyway. So, they're going to use that as an opportunity to connect with Warren and then say, Hey, Warren, you know, next month, do you mind if I swing by the house for an hour? I'd love to, I, I had an idea of something I'd love to share with you. And Warren's like, Oh my goodness, I respect this person so much. I can't believe they would come by and want to spend an hour with me. Right. Or, and if your kids are older, you, you know, they're having coffee or meeting them at Starbucks or whatever, but, but that, that type of, you know, someone you trust, someone who shows that they are maturing. I hate to use the word mature because, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as I say mature, we all feel like I'm, I lack spiritual maturity, but someone who's maturing, they're making steps forward in their growth in Jesus Christ. You see the fruit of the spirit in their life, the fruits of the spirit in, in their lives. And so uh, th- that's what came to my mind when you asked that question. That's really good. Can you maybe just share a word to, there are, there are different people who will be listening to this, watching this, so, you know, at times you said, okay, if I had a word for the senior pastors, like, would you have a word for them or a word for parents or youth, youth workers, children's workers? Like, could you kind of break down if maybe you had one word for these groups to share like one nugget that might really help them? Yeah. A senior, no, no one can shape or reshape the culture of a local church like a lead pastor. So I think one of the most important things a lead pastor can do, because a lead pastor is not sitting in the nursery on a Sunday rocking babies or in a third grade class teaching a small group lesson, right? Like that's that's not what a lead pastor does. But a lead pastor typically has the trust of the community. And, and when the lead pastor says, hey, I need you to veer two degrees to the right, you know, the people are doing what the lead pastor says. I mean, like, that's not always the case, but the, the people tend to trust the direction and the shepherding and the leadership of the lead pastor. So if you're a lead pastor and, and you're and you're following and tracking with this conversation, that worldview is largely shaped by the age of 13. Therefore, you know, what can we do to, to form them as young disciples? And, and you know, we, we have a little bit of a direction there. If that's the case, your voice to talk about children, to talk about the value, we call it child advocacy, your voice to advocate on behalf of children, that children matter at our church. And when when a when a third grader approaches me, I, as a senior pastor, get down on one knee and I fist bump them or high five them. And I ask, how did that basketball tournament go? Or, 
you know, how's school going or how you're making friends, like that kind of a lead pastor who notices kids, who sees kids and, and engages them. You can transform the culture of your church to where other men or other women say, wow, I love that my pastor embodies that I should also embody that. And mm. so next thing you know, like over the course of 24, 36, 48 months, you're, you're sowing a culture where in the middle of your sermon, when you say, by the way, parents, when you're talking, you know, blah, 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 like, like speak the language that is, that is, is casting vision that kids matter. We talk to kids, we see them, we disciple them. I'm giving mm. you stories of my failures and my successes. Yeah. And I'm, you know, like we talked in the other episode, we're setting up equipping where parents are actually getting equipped. You can transform the culture of your church that I think will enter. That's going to impact generations. So that, that's the, that's the word I think of for yeah. pastors is you can transform the culture of your church to be a disciple-making church by focusing on children. That's weird. Kind of sounds like you're asking us to be like Jesus. Well, I think hopefully that's what we're all saying. But yeah, I guess I guess you're right. Yeah. Here they come. Here come the kids. I get out of here, you know? It's like, oh, that's no, right. let's welcome them. You know, that's, that's right. I love that. Be like. Good word. Good, Good word. Uh, so what about, what about children's ministers, children's ministry people? Yeah, I, I would say... Erase the whiteboard, you know, get, get some time to get up on top of everything, create, create three hours in a week somewhere where you can just say, I need to erase the whiteboard and I need to write that question. What are the primary factors that lead to lasting faith in kids? Mm. And I, I would just, I would make that my pursuit, not what programs do we run, not what's our attendance, not, uh, you know, what curriculum are we? Those are all important things. They're all very important. They have to happen. But I, I think I would ask that question and I would engage my pastor and pastor, will you, will you journey with me in helping answer this question? What are the primary factors that lead to last? Because if, if we're, if we're answering that question as a local congregation, then we're probably going to as children age into students and students, young adults and young adults into midlife adult. Like we're, we're probably going to rewire the culture of answering that question at every age level of how do we form lasting faith? How do we make disciples? But I think if we start with children, we have a chance to holistically rewire the whole church and change the culture. So if you've got a senior pastor who's trying to change the culture by his language, his behaviors, that the way he talks about children, advocating for children, and then you've got a children's pastor on a more uh, kind of rewiring, like answering those questions and kind of making those tweaks within our children's ministry. You've got the two working together, uh, changing the culture with vision and language and tone and attitude toward children, but then also how we do our programming and our, our tactics and our methodology. All hmm. of a sudden, over the course of 24, 36, you know, 48 months, I, I think we can rebuild a church that it focuses on actually implementing child discipleship, which is specific and focused compared to children's ministry, which can be broad and lacking in focus. Yeah, yeah that's really good. I had a mentor of mine share the analogy of like, uh, we need to have like, like if, if generals are going to battle and they all stand around that table, like in the movies and they're moving those little, little figures around with the flag and all that stuff, you know, it's like, well, if, if only one guy knows the plan and the bomb goes off and it got him, you know, now we're all sunk. It sounds like this is a multi-year, you know, I could even see it even being like a 10-year. Like, how long does it take to change the culture of a church as those people grow up, right? It's like a long process. It sure it helps to have as many people on board from a diversity of perspectives that are all trying to get the same 
same direction. So, so it sounds like you were kind of saying like if the senior pastor gets it and is trying to is trying to move it forward, there's a pretty good chance of success. Can it work bottom up? Like if if a children's minister is listening to this, but the senior pastor is maybe not, like obviously you could share this with them. But is there much success in like moving it up the chain versus down the chain? You did a study on this, didn't you? <laughs> so a handful of years ago, I, I published a book with Pat Simo. She was the kids kids ministry director at Willow Creek for several years called Leading Kidmen. Uh, we actually literally wrote a book on that question. Uh, it, it, the subtitle is Leading Kidmen, How to Drive Real Change in Children's Ministry. If we can drop that in the show yeah. notes. Um, this, what this book does is it walks through like, Hey, you're the kids pastor or the kids ministry director, or whatever that title would be at any local congregation. You're closer to the needs of the family and the child than anyone else. And you, you've got your finger on the pulse of that. But a lot of times the lead pastor or the executive pastor, or even the other staff pastors do not. And these people are probably way more influential in how, and in how the, the parent is getting impacted in the church than you are because they've, they've got higher level positions in the church. So what do you do if you see the needs that those parents have or the child has, but you feel like you don't have much leverage in the power mm. structure of the church? This We wrote this book to help that children's pastor to know, how do I understand my pastor? How do I build a relationship with my pastor? How do I speak the language of my pastor? How do I kind of exercise and build my the muscles of my own leadership voice and so this, I think it's a pretty helpful resource in help, helping that children's ministry leader, yeah. whether they're a volunteer or a paid staff member, to be able to build the bridge of relationship and trust with your senior pastor. Think, think of uh, in the Old Testament, it's, is it David and Nathaniel or David and Jonathan where they he tells the question of, of the lamb and he gets David to feel empathy. And, you know, like that, that's that's what you want as as an advisor to your pastor is to be able to tell tell stories in such a way where your pastor feels that empathy and you help you help influence your pastor in a direction mm-hmm. of Christ-like ministry. Yeah. Well, that's really good. Well, how about a word toward parents? If parents listening to this and a lot of senior pastors are parents. A lot of disciple children's disciple people are parents, you know, children's ministers are parents. So what about a word to us parents? I would say 2050. As a parent, lift your eyes to the year 2050. And ask yourself, how old will my child be in that year? And then I would ask, like, who will they become? What is my vision for them? What is my dream? What is my prayer and my vision and my dream for my kids? Uh, you know, so if you're a 10 year old, you're hopefully you're a better math person than I am. If you're a 10 year old today, how old will you be in 2050? Uh, 28 is it 38, maybe? Oof. Yes. Yes. Something like that. So let's just say let's just say 40. Like. If your child's going to be 40 in the year 2050, who do you want them to become? And then, then I would follow that up with the, the cultural formation that we talked about. If I coast downstream in terms of discipling my child, if, I, if I'm pretty passive and I coast downstream, is that cultural formation, is it more likely that that cultural formation will be a powerful force that forms them into what we call hyper-individualists and they're all about self? Or will they catch the formation of the church and the gospel? Uh, you know, it, it, the, the more passive I am, the less likely they're going to be discipled. 
But if I'm more, if I'm more proactive, we call that counter formation. Like the cultural formation is happening, whether we try anything mm-hmm, or not, yes. but the counter formation that's called child discipleship. So if I have an intentional plan as a parent, but I, I think, I think thinking of the year 2050 is important because mm-hmm. if I, as a parent can get up every day and think 2050, it's coming, you know, my kids are going to live in 2050. Who are they going to become? That motivates me as a parent to think, okay. They're going to be 38 or 40 years old in 2050. How can I take a step today or this week to form them as a disciple of Jesus? I am not perfect as a parent. I have my own sins and my own struggles and my own past. And that can cause me to feel shame. But But I cannot let that fear keep me from a parent as just not discipling my kids. I've got to take steps in the grace of Jesus I've got to take steps forward in engaging my kids. And and if I could add one more word to this, I would add the word talk. Parents, just talk to your kids. Talk to your kids about everything. Talk to your kids about sports, about violin lesson, about travel soccer, about the Chicago Cubs. Talk to your kids about everything. And in the process of developing a talking, active relationship with your kids, guess what? You're building the infrastructure for relationship and discipleship to take place. If you're a talking parent, even if you're a high introvert, you can talk with your kids on a regular basis. If your kids are younger, it's better to start when they're babies, even when they can't understand you. That way they're so used to hearing from you that they they welcome talking, right? Mm. But if your kids are if your kids are older and you've kind of missed some of those windows, start today. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. And just just start talking with your kids. It's and by the way, if you've if you've kind of waited too long, maybe your starting point needs to be an apology. Like I I have underinvested yeah. in our relationship and maybe there maybe tears are going to come up and you just let your kids see that pain. It's okay. It's okay to say I, I messed up. I wasn't as engaging as I should have been. But when parents talk, wow, that's that's the con that's the conduit for dialogue and heart connection and passing along the gospel to be able to take place. Uh, that, that's so I would keep my eye on the year 2050. Who are my kids becoming? And how can I talk with them on a consistent basis, have a heart connection, and pass along the gospel to my mm-hmm. kids? You know, in Acts 3, it says that the, the man at the gate who's, who's lame it says, you know, Peter looked at him. He saw him, you know. That's it's such so, an interesting little, little so add-on. It's so good, you know. And, and then, the, by the way, what Acts 4, 420, Peter, Peter and John say, we can't not speak of the things we've seen and heard. Yeah, so if you're yeah, a parent, yeah. you know 2050 is coming and God has transformed your life or he saved you. You can't not speak of the things you've seen and heard. You've seen God do so much in your life. You've seen him do so much in the scriptures. Tell your kids about it. Tell them. You know, sometimes like I can imagine Peter and John seeing that man. It's kind of uncomfortable. Like we walked past him a bunch, you know, we what what can we what 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 are we what are we able to do? Like so there's that uncomfortability of someone asking for money, and you're you know, uh, and they got through that. You know, they looked at him and engaged it and all that. I just feel like that's such a good and what you said about speaking. It's like not just looking but speaking, like look looking in the eye and having an honest conversation and those sorts of things are really really powerful. Well, if you had a final word to share with us today, what would it be, Matt? Uh, I alluded to, I alluded to this earlier, maybe in the first episode or this one, but it's this idea of we're using old maps. So let me let me end with this. Um, last summer, my wife and I went on vacation to San Antonio, and we saw these uh, old this old map in one of the Catholic missions. You know, it's, it, imagine a map 
eight feet wide, five feet tall, it takes up the majority of a wall, right? And as I'm looking at this map, it was created in the 1500s, it was commissioned by the Italians. It's, you know, it, it's crude enough that you could tell, okay, this is the shape of North America. This is the shape of Africa and Europe. You can tell it's a, it's a map of the world, but at the same time, it's a, clearly an old map. So I had this thought, right? Let's use our imaginations mm. just for a minute. I had this thought, if we could bring these map makers back from the dead, what would we say to them? I think we would say, thank you. Like with limited, this was a well-funded project, no, no doubt. But I'm sure with limited technology, limited mobility, limited visibility compared to what we have today, look at what you created. Well, job well done. Great job. I think what we would not say to them is put an image of Google Maps side by side and say, mm. you guys are a bunch of idiots. Look at how off you were. Wow. Like we would we would never do that. So we would lead with gratitude and say, thank you. Right. Having said that, if today's child educators were still using that old map to teach geography, navigation, uh, political boundaries. Like, like we would be like outraged. We would say local school system, you're using <laughs> old technology. You're using outdated information. This is going to lead to negative long-term consequences, right? It, so here's the thing though, in children's ministry today, that's kind of where we are. So we're using old maps in children's ministry. So if I could kind of wrap all this up, it's this right here. Like, we have way more information today than we did 30 years, 40 years ago when the children's ministry map was being built based on 1970s, 80s, 90s assumptions. We have more information today about the leading factors that lead to lasting faith in children. We have more information about mental health, Bible literacy, scripture engagement, all this data on, on all sorts of variables are, that are how our children's faith is being formed. But we're still using the old map based off of 1970s, 80s, 90s assumptions that were published in the early 2000s. So we're using old maps in children's ministry. So the prevailing thought is this, like, we've got to move to the new map of children's ministry, which is a lot of what we've been discussing. But here's the thing. The new map of children's ministry is actually an ancient map. You know, the, the, the mm -hmm. primary mm -hmm. cities that need to be built in this new map are our, our, our lasting, universal, timeless cities. They're not built on, on relevance and entertainment and these things that, that had their place in a certain majority Christian culture. Yes. But we, we kind of doubled and tripled down on those. And we're now realizing, oh boy, we built cities. We built the wrong cities. So we've got to move to the new map of children's ministry. But here's what encourages me, Matt. We see more churches moving in this direction. It's moving away from this church growth, attractional driven model, which is yes. answering the question, how do we get more people here? And it's moving toward the primary question of how do we form lasting faith in our children, in our congregation? That's a question that can carry the church, a thriving church into the future. That's so good. Now, my dad was a cartographer. He was a map maker for a living for 35 oh years goodness. for the federal government. And uh, so they're always like trying to make it more accurate, trying to make it better, you know, and then they got yeah. into like in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, it's like now we're doing elevations and stereo photography and like now we're making flight simulators and get more accurate and like all this. And, you know, I think as a, as a parent, sometimes, like you say, we sometimes say like perfection is, is our, is the, what is it? What's the, what's the phrase? Like perfection is the enemy of, Good. of, um, how's that go? Is it, is it good? Is it good? I can't remember. Is it good or something like yeah. that? 
so I'm like waiting for the perfect approach, right? Like I'm waiting for all the data. I'm waiting till the map is perfect. Yeah. Once we get this map perfect, then I'll move forward. And it's like, no, don't do that. Like you got to move ahead with what you know now. Um, it, it's kind of like starting a YouTube channel. It's like you can't start a YouTube channel and peg every perfect analytic of everything you've got to learn your first hundred videos. Like you got to make a hundred videos before Correct. you finally know enough of the pieces to start tuning this thing in. So, so in software development, they call that iterative development. It, you know, yes. okay. it's 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 not completion. It's it's not. It's just iter. It's one iteration yeah. after another. You put something out there, you test it, you get rapid feedback, you learn from it. And you know, you know. So I think your point is we have enough information to go on about the new map to know that formation or discipleship is the center of that target. So if if we can establish that initial framework as the map to pursue, we can, to your point, we can add on those layers of accuracy iteratively over time. Yes. But that but that primary goal of lasting faith is, is not going to change. It's it's universal, yes. it's ancient, it goes back to the scriptures. It's right there in the gospels coming directly from the lips of Jesus. That's so good. And so if we're a, if you're a children's minister and you're like, you know, you get a little frozen because you're like, well, there's like a hundred approaches. Like, which one is the most accurate? Which one is the most biblical? Which one? it's you got to start. You know, it sounds yeah. seems to me like as a parent, you just got to start. You just got to take those steps and that effort and then let it let it let it refine. You know, I think it's very well said. So extremely well met. Mm. Yeah, well, good to that. be with you. Yeah, you too. You too. I appreciate your time, your talents and your open handedness. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I want to hop on here before I sign off and just say, make sure to click subscribe to this podcast. I would love for you to stay up to date when I release new episodes or special events or updates and things like that, just so that you're in the know of that. And also, if you have not bought those tickets for the National Disciple Making Forum, it is coming up in the next couple of weeks. So go to discipleship.org and buy those tickets. I would love to see you there. All right, have a great day. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community. For disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. 
He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there.